I've chosen this morning to bring together two different passages from the book of Ecclesiastes and uh, treat them both in one sermon. And you'll see why momentarily. Let's first read the first one, Ecclesiastes 3, the verses 18 through 21. 3 verse 18, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God tests them that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and all return to dust. Who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth? If you look at verse 21 now and look at the bottom of the page, you see that there are other versions that read it a bit differently. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and whether the spirit of the beast goes downward to the earth? That makes more sense in light of the preceding verses uh, and is followed by most other translations. At any rate, the preceding verses are very clear in what they're saying, and we'll get through that in the first point of the sermon. But now the second point of the sermon is going to turn to chapter 12, so let's look at that for a moment. Because here we have dust and spirits also, but it's a more positive note. 12 verse 7. Then the dust, this is when we die, right? Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. So those are the texts, that's the text for this morning's sermon. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you have perhaps already forgotten the name of Harambi. Are you starting to connect it now? The gorilla from the Cincinnati Zoo? This was broadcast all over North America, at the very least, probably all over Europe as well. Rummy the Gorilla in the Cincinnati Zoo had the misfortune of having a three- or four-year-old boy fall into his enclosure, uh, into the moat, and the gorilla dragged him around. It wasn't really clear what the gorilla was going to do, and the zookeepers shot the gorilla for fear that he was going to kill the child, and the child was saved. And what followed was this huge public outcry. And there were even people saying, you should let the boy die and save the gorilla because there are so few of those gorillas and look how many of these naughty little boys there are in the world. Homo sapiens are abundant, super abundant, but these gorillas are an endangered species. And we're all just one species or another. Nothing separates the gorilla from us uh, in any meaningful way, we just happen to be at the top of the food chain, as it were, and we've survived as the fittest. Now, it's very interesting that the outcry was against the destruction of the gorilla on the grounds that gorillas are an endangered species, and all within the framework of the theory of evolution. On the theory of evolution, you are an evolved species which has evolved higher, but in principle, you have no more value than the gorilla. So if there are fewer gorillas, kill off the humans and save the gorillas. 
that's a logical consequence of evolution in the people's minds. Now, interestingly enough, is it really logical? You could say evolution teaches survival of the fittest. We're the fittest. We have the guns, so shoot the gorillas. Now, we don't want to do that. We should care for God's world. But you get the point. We're dealing here with a problem that arises from the framework of treating the whole world and particularly treating humans from the perspective of evolution. From the perspective of evolution, you have no advantage over an animal in the, in the whole long-range, long-term uh, of, of reality. If animals have souls... If you have a soul, then an animal has a soul. But according to an evolutionist, neither an animal has a soul nor you have a soul. We're all just material beings, and the difference between you and your computer isn't really that great, actually. You're an assemblage of parts. You have a certain purpose. You fulfill. You're here. You're gone. And when you're gone, you're really gone. There's no more of you. And that's really taking root more and more. Now, our text... And the children, you might have noticed this, speaks of the spirit of the animal going down into the earth. And I know some of you have goats. Uh, some of you, many of you have pets. And you, have you ever thought that your pets or your cows have souls? Probably not, because all you think of when you think of a soul is that which goes to heaven when we die. But in the history of the church, in the history of theology, it wasn't uncommon to think of animals having souls. That's why the text even talks about the spirit of the animal. And spirit and soul in the Bible are often used interchangeably. So you can think of this as soul. And the idea is simply this. Whatever has life has some life principle. What is it that gives this material reality of my body or yours? It's life. That's our souls. And so animals have to have souls too. Some people would even say plants have souls But then they distinguish and they say, but that's not a human soul, it's an animal soul. It's just giving life to the animal and it's giving it its instincts, but it's not helping it know God and use words and have higher order thinking and so on. But that's where this talk of animals having souls comes from. And then for children, of course, you ask, well, when my pet dies, does it go to heaven? And, well, we'll just briefly say right now, In the new creation, God is going to have dogs and cats and cows and lions and lambs and all kinds of beautiful animals, all the things he made. But Jesus didn't die to save your particular pet or mine or your cows, but to save them in general so that all the species and variety that God made will be there. We just want to take care of that at the beginning. So we have texts here that are talking about the dust and the spirit, or the body and the soul. And the text from Ecclesiastes 3 seems pretty, uh, rather pessimistic. People die, animals die, it's the same breath they breathe, same O2, and then they die and they're gone and that's it. And then chapter 12 says, oh, but when you die, the dust returns to the ground as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. And now you have this positive statement. At least it's more positive than chapter 3. And one commentator, when he was working his way through his commentary on Ecclesiastes, he simply said, the preacher is confused. 
And this particular commentator thinks of the preacher as a cantankerous old man who's basically unhappy about life. He's reflecting on life at the end, and and he's pessimistic, and he says to his son, watch out for all this terrible stuff in life. And oh, by the way, nobody really knows what happens after you die. doesn't seem any better for a man than for an animal. And then he gets to chapter 12, and he says this other thing, and the commentator says he's confused. And that same commentator, by the way, happens to espouse evolutionary creation, which is to say he's a Christian who wants to say God created the world, but he did it by means of evolution. And so that commentator also has some difficulty with the idea of human souls. Certainly a number of the evolutionary creationists are starting to deny that we have a soul. So, we need to deal with these things as we work our way through these two passages and see how they actually do fit together. And we're taking our theme from chapter 12. Remember your creator now. That's that positive command. Remember your creator now. And here's the even more positive thing. Why should you remember your creator now? In preparation for life with him forever. So chapter 3 is not the last word. Chapter 12 is more the last word. And it's positive. You're going to live with God forever. And you should prepare for that now. So remember your creator now in preparation for life with him forever. We'll use chapter 3 to see God's test. Notice it says in 3 verse 18, as regards the condition of men, God tests them. That'll be the first point. And the second point, God's truth. Both texts are God's truth, but you need to see them in their proper framework in Ecclesiastes to appreciate what's being taught here. So let's set up the problem that occurs in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, I said to you, is really working out what it means that because we sin, God has cursed the world. And there is, life is full of futility and meaningless and trouble. It's just tough. And one of the common phrases in Ecclesiastes is under the sun. I saw all that people do under the sun, the preacher says. And I saw this under the sun, and I tried that under the sun. And under the sun is really his way of talking about the world that the sun is shining on right now, that world, that world where when you drive along you see the windrows in the fields and you see the cows going into the shade over here because it's hot in the sun. It's the world you see. And if you want to understand that in today's terms, that's the evolutionist's entire world. It's the observable world. It's the experimentable world. It's the tangible world. It's the physical world. It's the visible world. That is the world under the sun. And the preacher says, okay, if if you'll just come with me on this little journey of thought, experimentation, let's do some experiments. Let's just restrict our understanding to life under the sun, to the visible world, and let's see what would be the proper conclusions if that's all there is. In other words, it's a way of investigating God's curse on the world. And what he does then is he tries to find what holds it together. 
What's the deeper meaning behind everything? Why are we here? What's going on? How long are we going to live? What happens when we die? What's the meaning of life? And time after time, as he restricts himself to life under the sun, what does he come up with? What's his conclusion? In this translation, vanity. Vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. That's the other key theme in the book. Under the sun is one, and vanity is the other. And vanity, in the original Hebrew language, comes from a word referring to vapor or breath. You take out your glasses and you blow on the glasses to make them foggy. How fast does that disappear? It's gone almost right away before you wipe them off to get them clean. That's the idea of the word vanity. It's translated as meaningless in other contexts, but the root idea is something that you can't really hold between your fingers. It just slips through, and you can't really look at it very long. It's gone so fast. That's our lives. Our lives are fleeting. They're temporary. They're ephemeral. You're here. You're gone. And that's the sense that the preacher has every time he does another experiment under the sun. And it just leads him to extend the meaning of the vapor and the, and the meaning of the fleetingness of life to say, it's all in vain, it's futile. We're trying and we're trying and we're trying, but we're not really making any progress figuring out why we're here, what we're doing, where we're going, where we came from. We just don't know. If we restrict ourselves to life under the sun. And you need to appreciate that there's truth in this. This is correct. It's not true that you're here for no reason. But it is true that if, under the conditions that you say, I'm only going to look at life under the sun, and I'm only going to look at life that I can observe, then that's your conclusion. That you're no better off than an animal. And in that sense evolutionists can be very logical. Take the position that what you're here for is to propagate your genetic material. Kind of meaningless. So what? So you, you and your species continues, but you just die and you never get to know anything that happens with them. And this, this conclusion of meaninglessness And this concern that no one knows what's beyond this life, it plagues the preacher. It so bothers him deep in his soul. And he doesn't want you to read the book of Ecclesiastes and say, ho-hum, we just need to know Jesus Christ and it's all okay. No, he wants you to experience some of that angst and some of that struggle to realize that this world, as it is, needs redemption. And it's a big concern for him that no one knows. It's in our text. He says, you know, one thing happens to man, the sons of men, the same thing happens to the animals. Uh, verse 19, and already verse 18, God tests us so we can see that we're like animals. One dies, so dies the other. Verse 19, we all have the same breath. We don't have an advantage over the animals in verse 20. We all go to the same place. And then verse 21, who knows? Who really knows where the spirit of the man goes? Who really knows where the spirit of the animal goes? All you see upon death is the corpse. 
the remaining mater- the material remains of the person or the material remains of the animal and it joins the earth and very quickly in fact so who knows he says and this problem of knowledge is repeated in a number of places i'm going to review several with you chapter 6 verse 12 has a rhetorical question just like 3 verse 21 6 verse 12 for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun see no one can and He says this again, 7 verse 24. But as for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? And the implied answer is that no one can. 8 verse 7. For he does not know what will happen. You don't know the future. So who can tell him when it will occur? Well, no one can. And 9 Verse 1, I considered this all in my heart so that I could declare it that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. It's a cryptic verse which other translations take to mean people do not know whether when they die love awaits them or hate awaits them. They don't know for sure in this life what will be the outcome of the judgment when they die, heaven or hell. 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now here's the reason why. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Your body's going to go in the ground. Nobody has any knowledge when they're in the ground. No wisdom. No one knows. 9 verse 12. For man also does not know his time. And it's really frustrating to the preacher. And this is, this is six, these are six examples, but there are more in this book. And it all leads to 2 verse 20, which he, set, he sets it out right at the outset already. What does this lead to? If you don't know, you search and you, you experiment under the sun and you can't find the answers, what does it lead to? 2 verse 20 leads to despair. Therefore I turned my heart and despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. Despair. And that's what the world is trying to keep away all the time, is the despair that should logically follow from the presuppositions uh, and beliefs and theories of evolution, for example. So many things in the world, anything that's godless, it leads to despair. But now there's something even more fundamental or interesting, and that is, well, why do people even ask such questions? Gorillas don't wonder about eternity, and your dog is, puts its tail between its legs when it gets told off, and it wags its tail when you praise it, and that's it. It just lives in the moment. It doesn't reflect on how long its life is going to be. 
Why do you ask such questions? Why do people do all these experiments under the sun? Why do they even care about anything outside of this life? Why don't they just accept it and say, this is all that there is to life. You live, you're born, you live, you die, and you're gone, and who cares about anything else? Why are there religions all over the world? Well, this too the preacher thought about and in 3 verse 11, he's here talking about how there's a time for everything, which ultimately means that there's a judgment of God awaiting us for everything we do in this life. And God, 3 verse 11, has made everything beautiful in its time. Maybe that means something like everything will work together for good. But here, look at this. 3 verse 11, also he has put eternity in their hearts. God put that in human hearts. He didn't put it in animal hearts, but he put eternity in your heart, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. So he gives us a sense of all that you see is not really the whole explanation of everything. There's more to it. There's a whole lot longer time frame that you need to keep in mind, and it's eternity, and God put it in our hearts, but not in such a way that we can take it and start climbing up the ladder to God and voila, find out the meaning of life. But the fact that man asks, that man is concerned that he does not know, that man experiences angst over this, that all these religions develop in the world, that tells you that we were made for more. We were made for more than what the evolutionist says we were made for. We're made for God and we're made for eternity. Now this was really brought home to me once as a pastor when I had the privilege of being at the deathbed of a member of the congregation. His wife was at the head on one side, I was on the other side. His son was nearer to his feet on the other side. And there was a curtain separating us from the hospice bed beside. And we were quietly singing psalms. And while we were doing that, the man beside us in this thick German accent on his phone out loud said they are singing these stupid Christian songs. And we were a little taken aback and looked at each other while we were singing. And we just kept on quietly singing. And then he got off the phone and I moved the curtain and I said, I'm sorry, is our singing bothering you? Oh, as if he didn't know we could hear, it was just a curtain. But that led to a conversation, and in the conversation, he said, and I'm quoting this, he said, the life of a human is of no more value than the life of a cow. That's what he said. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, because we all know that we came from a slimy soup so many millions of years ago. And we've each evolved in chance ways to be what we are. And we carried on with this and just tried to make him think a little bit about whether he was actually consistent. For instance, why did he care about someone's immorality? If we're just the same as cows in terms of our value, then why not have any, why have any different morality than a cow? Cows do it, humans do it, whatever. And then we asked, why shouldn't someone just kill you? If your life is of no more value and we can kill cows, then we could kill you. 
And he did appreciate the conversation. It wasn't all as bad as it make it sound now. But I just want to use it as an illustration to show you where certain ways of thinking lead. And what is the very kind of thing that the preacher is struggling with in the book of Ecclesiastes? If all you have is life under the sun, then it's futile, it's vapor, you blow and it's gone. And it doesn't have any deeper meaning either, it's just the same as an animal's life. And through this all, he is showing us that God put us in this life and God put a curse on this world to test us. And so that word with which our text in chapter 3 opens as regards the children of men, God tests them. That's such a key concept. If you just skip over it, you say, oh, but the preacher is saying all these things and we know it's not true that it's the same with animals and people. But he says God is testing us to push us to that conclusion if we will not look above the sun and find him. And if we won't get on our knees and humble ourselves before God and seek something more. If we don't do that, then we're just failing the test time and time again. And what, what we call this in apologetics, which the Lord allows me to teach at our seminary, is an apologetics of despair, where you take someone's way of looking at the world and you say, okay, if that's the way you look at the world, if that's what you think is the origin of humans and the value of human life, what is the conclusion that this leads to? What's the logical outcome? And if that's the logical outcome, that just brings you to despair. But I have something to offer, which is not despair, but hope. And you surely want hope. Because this is another interesting thing. Just as God has wired every person to have a sense of eternity in their hearts, he's also wired them not to want to despair. We don't want to live in despair. And that's why the world shuts it out as much as they can. And this apologetics of despair, we can see it also in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember the rich young man who came to our Lord and he said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus stops him in his tracks. He says, why do you call me good? And he wants to make the man think. You know the commandments, he says. And then Jesus lists off some commandments, and the young man says, well, I kept them all since my youth. And you can tell that he's still got something burdening his conscience. And Jesus just nails it and says, oh, um, there's one thing you lack. You know, like I just thought of it. Um, go sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor. This is a rich young man. Just imagine him having inherited this great estate. Sell it all and give it to the poor and then come follow me. Then you'll have eternal life. What does it say in the scriptures there? The man went away sad because he had great possessions. You see, it led him to some despair because his trust and his heart were not in the right place and Jesus does this to lead him to something better and so much of Ecclesiastes is written with the same purpose to lead us to something better so we can get to the end and talk about our creator and talk about our souls going to God talk about keeping all his commandments God tests us and we have to reach the conclusion that apart from him life is meaningless it is vapor and vanity and even with him, this present life is still 
very short, but we need to look to the next. There will be a time for every deed. There will be a judgment. Ecclesiastes assumes an afterlife where justice prevails. And that's all part of the eternity that God has put in men's hearts. And all of this, then, from chapter 3, is meant to lead us to chapter 12, verse 7, and help us see that, no, this is not just a cantankerous old preacher who's confused. This is a man of God inspired by the Holy Spirit who has, in a poetic way, taught us to stop and to think and to understand what the world under the sun is subjected to, futility, and how it groans, seeking redemption. So let's turn to chapter 12, verse 7, and see how, where we had God's test, and it's all true, but now he moves us towards this stronger gospel truth, 12, verse 7, describing death. The dust will return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit will return to God who gave it. So there's a further hope here. And the the preacher's not confused. I've explained to you how we ought to read those passages that would lead to despair if you didn't have the gospel. They are true in the proper context. But now we have to read this passage as one of those ones that breaks through. It comes from above the sun and comes into this world about a creator and about a body and a soul and about a spirit or a soul going up to be with God upon death. One of the ways that you notice these positive things coming through in the book of Ecclesiastes is sometimes where there are commands in Ecclesiastes. 5 verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen. Right? Or 11 verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters. There's a certain truth being taught there. 12 verse 1, remember now your creator in the days of your youth. And the ending, of course, fear God and keep his commandments. Those commands, they're richer, they're fuller, they're, they're something from above the sun and beyond this world. And the truth then is that the Spirit goes up to God who gave it while the dust returns to the earth as it was. So God separates the body and the Spirit. It's a, still a sign of the curse And that's why 12 verse 8 still says vanity of vanities, says the preacher, everything is vanity. Because we have to go through this world and have our bodies and souls ripped apart and die, that's what death is, and await a resurrection. Why can't we just have redemption full and free and complete and glory now? Because we have to face the consequences of our sin in the beginning. We have to face the curse. We have to face the despair. We have to face the, vain, the futility of life. Nevertheless, there's more hope in 12 or 7 than in chapter 3. Because although we have the ripping apart of the body and soul, we have them each going to the proper place, and at least the soul, the spirit, to God who gave it. And that expression in 12 or 7 is as a climax you have this poetic description of growing old in 12 verses 1 through 5. 
And it ends with a clear statement. You get all this poetry about almond tree blossoming like old gray hair and so on. But you get to the end of 12 verse 7 and man goes to his eternal home. Hmm. It doesn't say what that is. But now we're getting more literal language about death and the mourners go about the streets. Then we get several word pictures in verse 6. The silver cord is loosed or snapped. The golden bowl is broken. The pitcher is shattered at the fountain and the wheel is broken at the well. Four poetic descriptions of death and then as a climactic statement and as a literal statement, the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. So it's a certain climactic statement and contains hope about our eternal home being with God. And so how do we relate 3 verse 18 to 21 to 12 verse 7? Well, we see chapter 3 challenging us to find the truth without God. And it's saying to you, you want to find the truth without God? You can't. You can't. And you won't. And any truth you make up without this true God is just made up. And made up truth is not truth. It's actually lies. And when people do that, then it's right. No one knows. It's absolutely true. But chapter 12 is now shining more light on this, giving this hopeful truth that God has revealed that at death the spirit of the soul goes back to the Creator who gave it. There is a disillusion and a breaking apart, but there's hope. Well, brothers and sisters... As we can now see how to hold these two things together, let's take the next step and add some more scripture to this. Because if the book of Ecclesiastes is leading us to say we need more, we need the gospel, we need hope, we need divine revelation from above the sun, then let's look for some. And just start in the Psalms. We could think of Psalm 17, which we sang after the law. And it ends by saying, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with seeing your likeness. When I awake. Oh. So we die, and our bodies are lying there as if they're asleep. And we awake. It's probably about the resurrection and seeing God after the resurrection. And those early texts in Scripture about the afterlife don't always distinguish dying and going to heaven from resurrection of the body that follows and new creation that comes after that. But the hope is real. And so Psalm 73 verse 24 says about the present time, you guide me with your counsel and afterward, after guiding me with your counsel through this life, you will take me into glory. It's beautiful. The Psalm 27 Psalm 27. There the believer expresses his longing to be in God's temple forever. His heavenly temple. One thing have I desired of the Lord. And Isaiah prophesied that when the righteous perish, no one may care, but they enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. See, peace. Things that are well-ordered. And through Isaiah, the Holy Spirit also teaches us to find food for our souls with him. Chapter 55, come all who are thirsty, come, 
Listen, listen to me, and your soul, your soul will delight in the richest of food. Give ear and listen to me. Come to me that your soul may live. It's the beginning of Isaiah 55. So that's God's truth. You do have a soul. And that's a truth that comes from above the sun. And yet, because God put eternity in man's heart, all people tend to think that way. And they always say when somebody dies that they're in a better place, even if they hardly believe anything, just because that's what they want. Well, you feed your soul with God's holy revelation, and then it lives. And that's part of what it means to remember your Creator now in the days of your youth. It means, remember, like if you ask God to remember you, it doesn't mean just think of me after I die or something, but think of me now. And when we have to remember our Creator, it's it's not just remember Him and, and have it somewhere way off in your memory, but It's like remembering the great deeds of the Lord. When you remember them, you celebrate them. And you're happy about them. Remembering your Creator in the days of your youth is knowing God. Fearing Him and keeping His commandments. Living with Him. Not forgetting Him. And in fact, remembering Him is not sort of every now and then in the back of my mind, but at the forefront of my mind. Because you know that everything you do will ultimately have a judgment. Well, brothers and sisters, we mentioned that there are many other religions. And they also have claims about souls. In fact, they have some pretty grand claims about souls. For example, reincarnation. You have an eternal soul. Depends how you live now. If you live well, you'll come back into another body hopefully you won't go down towards the animals you go to even a better person and that's reincarnation well sure they do brothers and sisters but i'll tell you what they lack and you should know this of course they don't have the son of god they don't have the lord jesus christ so they don't have a living example of someone who has actually been dead truly rose to life and has the life that never, ever ends. He's across the thresholds. They have gods who cannot do this for them. They don't have a living hope. And you do. You do. You have Jesus Christ, your living hope, and the Scriptures are very clear about this. Not only was this prophesied that He would die and rise, but there were witnesses who with these eyes under that sun saw Him die. And they saw where he was buried. And they went to bring more spices and he wasn't there. And then he appeared to them alive forevermore in a new body. And they recorded this. They recorded it for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You want to question one? Check the other. You want to question him? Check the third. Then check the fourth. And if you still have questions, then the Apostle Paul will remind you that Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at once who were most of whom were still alive when he wrote it. And he says, this is historical fact. This Jesus really lived, or really died, and really lives forever. And so you can ask them time and time again, but they always say the same thing. He lives. And Jesus Christ on the cross said to the one thief, 
who had uh, asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. There's that word remember again. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then Jesus, as he's dying, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7. Spirit went up to God who gave it. So Jesus is in, the, in heaven in his spirit then, and, and he dies first. Then the, other thief, the thief on the cross dies when they break the legs of the thieves. And his soul goes up to be with God too, and there in heaven he sees Jesus. But then Jesus goes away, the soul of Jesus, which you should probably think of a soul not like some little thing like a lump of dough, but a kind of shadow of the body that would give life to every part of the body if it were with the body. So he sees Jesus, and Jesus departs, but then Jesus comes back 40 days later with a glorified body, and now that thief on the cross is in heaven in the soul, but he has this absolute and complete certainty that he will receive back a glorified body because he sees Jesus with his glorified body. It's all certain in Christ. And that's why in the New Testament we find much more positive expressions for me to live as Christ, but to die is gain. That's more of Christ. And so I beseech you as people of God to live as those who by faith have crossed over from death to life. You belong to a new creation and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And it is secure. And no one can take what is yours by faith. So live as people who have the truth, people who are confident in the Lord, people who know their Creator and know that He knows them and that you will live with Him forever. Your life is no longer futile and it isn't just merely ephemeral. This life, if Jesus doesn't return first, is ephemeral. It just lasts for a short time, really. But there's an eternity awaiting us, brothers and sisters. And so now, as we bring this to a close, I do need to ask you whether you care for your soul. What do you do to acknowledge the reality that you are not just a body? It's not enough to say, oh, but we're not evolutionists. We think we have a body and a soul. If you believe you have a soul, as the Scriptures teach, what do you do for your soul? I know what you do for your body, because you're all with your faces shining and nobody's dirty from work, we all took a shower and we all took care of our hair and we we make sure we eat the right foods and we do some exercise and we just take care of ourselves and if things aren't well, we go to the doctor. Do you take care of your soul? Do you go to the doctor for your soul? Well, I know that you're here this morning. Jesus is the doctor of your soul. He comes to you in the voice of the preachers, lowly men though they be. And he says, I'm here to save you, body and soul, and you belong to me. Now take care of your soul. Feed it regularly with Jesus Christ, who said you had to eat his flesh and drink his blood, which means don't just have a faith in him out there, but bring him into your heart and into your life. Really believe in him. That's what your soul needs to have the life that is truly life. And so, brothers and sisters, instead of being like the world, which on the one hand talks about a soul and talks about yoga and talks about mindfulness and and needs peace, and yet on the other hand, 
parties like crazy and just gets busy in all kinds of sports and all kinds of idolatrous pursuits and just gives their lives to these things because they don't want to ask the big questions. Brothers and sisters, we don't need to be like that. We know the one who came from above the sun. We know Jesus Christ who entered into this world, a real man. Witnesses saw him. And you have the real Christ who lived in real history, who obtained a real salvation, who has real life, eternal life. And it's all yours when you hold on to him by faith. A faith that God works so that he ensures that you're not messing it up. He's working it in your heart. He's giving you Christ. He's bringing you into the church of God. And everything Christ has, you have, it's yours by faith. So treasure Jesus Christ, feed on Him, live by Him, speak about Him, and remember Him now in preparation for life with Him forever. Amen.